We're in a schoolyard in Evanston, Illinois in the mid-1930s. There's a new kid about 10 years old. He's small in stature, wears glasses, has a high-pitched voice. In other words, he's bully bait. He's used to it. In all, he would attend eight different grade schools, but he still dreads it. And sure enough, three bigger kids surround him on the playground, calling him the names he's heard so often before, sissy, fairy, and all the rest. It doesn't take long for their taunts to turn violent, and the new kid is on the ground with fists coming at him from all directions. And then suddenly, there's a savior. A bigger kid swoops in and clobbers the bullies who run away. He then leans down and helps Wally Cox stand up, and he speaks. Hi, I'm Marlon Brando. I've just become your new best friend. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Welcome to the Potluck. I'm David Inman. If you know Wally Cox at all, it's probably through one of three things. No need to fear, Underdog is here. You might remember him as the voice of Underdog on the 1960s cartoon series. You might remember him from his numerous guest shots on sitcoms, including as bird watcher Casper Biddle on the Beverly Hillbillies. I distinctly heard the call of a hermit warbler. How exciting! Perhaps the clappers will know there's one nested here about. You wait here. If there are any questions, I'll sneak out and see you. But Professor Biddle would like to meet Mr. Clappett. Yes, I'm trying to raise money to aid in the preservation of the California condor. The professor is the only human being who has ever managed to live in prolonged and intimate contact with that rare and remarkable bird. I've actually occupied a condor's nest. Or you might remember him as one of the original regulars, top cube on the left, on the game show Hollywood Squares. Start the round, Celeste. I'll take Wally Cox. True or false, etiquette demands that a gentleman close his eyes when he kisses. Oh, well, who's watching? <laughs> now, see, if she closes her eyes, then she won't know whether he's, his eyes are open. This has been a problem, hasn't it? Uh, etiquette, etiquette. Well, I suppose on account of the number of complaints that have come into my office on the subject, <laughs> yeah. I would say that gentlemen uh, uh, ought to close his eyes, in uh, case, you know, there's nothing to watch anyway. I think that'd be nice. I agree. It is false. There oh, is no, no rule. X gets the square. Your opponent Wally Cox, the, the kid in the schoolyard, grew up, of course. But he was still of small stature with a high, nerdy voice and horn-rimmed glasses. As is often the case, appearances can be deceiving. Cox is remembered by his friends as witty, warm, and surprisingly strong. He outfitted his house in Bel Air with hanging rings and constantly swung from room to room. And yet, for most of his performing career, Wally Cox was cast solely based on how he looked and spoke 
usually in comic roles as meek, ineffectual characters. You're probably more familiar with Marlon Brando for his reputation as a maverick as much for his acting career. Marlon Brando was one of the most controversial, iconoclastic actors of the 20th century. His best performances were raw and primal, like Stanley Kowalski in the Broadway and Hollywood versions of Tennessee Williams' A Streetcar Named Desire. He won Oscars for On the Waterfront and The Godfather, the latter of which he famously refused to accept in order to protest Hollywood's portrayal of Native Americans. He courted controversy in films like Last Tango in Paris and Apocalypse Now. His temperamental behavior on the 1962 production of Mutiny on the Bounty caused the film's budget to skyrocket and almost put MGM out of business. But let's go back to the schoolyard for a minute and Wallace Maynard Cox. He was born in Detroit in 1924. His parents divorced when he was very young, and during the early 1930s, Wally, his sister, his mother, and stepfather lived in several different towns. In 1961, he wrote an autobiography of sorts called My Life as a Small Boy and looked back on that time. I found out that I was small and weak. During those ages when it is customary for the new kid to have to slug it out with the established residents, I attended eight different grade schools in many different communities. To say that I was therefore a new kid eight times would be redundant, and therefore I say it loud and clear for when we've been through hell we want people to know it. I recommend my technique to everyone and anyone. Give up before it's too late. That is to say, before the fight starts. Give up and with beak unbent from the fray, you will one day live to excoriate the bullies in your memoirs. I remained so low in the pecking order that anyone would strain his neck if he stooped to peck me. There's only one drawback to this procedure. The volume of the resulting suppressed hostility is so great that I am virtually assured of becoming one of those mass murderers who friends and neighbors had always regarded as exceptionally docile. When Wally was about 10, his family moved to Evanston, Illinois, and his friendship with Marlon Brando began. He was more than a friend, Brando would write later. He was my brother, closer to me than any human being in my life except my sisters. We were born in the same part of the country, came from the same culture, shared the same values, and had the same sense of humor. He was extremely funny, and he found me amusing, and we had wonderful times. Brando and Cox came from similar family backgrounds. Both had alcoholic mothers and distant fathers. They loved creating their own secret language and going for long hikes, where Wally would talk about the types of trees, plants, and rocks they encountered, and Marlon listened intently. He called Wally walrus and offered unconditional love and acceptance, and vice versa. The two of them protected each other, if Wally's mother was off on a bender, he would come and stay at the Brando home. The connection between Wally Cox and Marlon Brando was part Tom Sawyer and part Brokeback Mountain. At least that's what some people say. They spent so much time together that inevitably rumors started about their sexuality and their attraction to each other. Some friends say they did have a sexual relationship. 
But others, including close family members, say it was more a case of intense brotherly love, a deep, lifelong friendship. By the time Wally entered high school, his family had moved back to Detroit, and Brando had entered military school. The two best friends were separated. As World War II began, Cox's family moved to New York City. He was in the Army for four months and then worked as a dance instructor and a silversmith. He enrolled at City College, where he studied botany. At about the same time, Brando also found himself in New York. He was going to pursue an acting career, and he worked odd jobs as a short-order cook and elevator operator. He also hung out down in Greenwich Village, making romantic conquests, men and women, and getting to know up-and-coming writers like Tennessee Williams and Norman Mailer. One day, Brando and his sister Fran had just been grocery shopping. They were pushing a cart down 7th Avenue, and Marlon was trying to talk his sister into getting in so he could push her down the street. She refused, but at that very moment, Wally Cox came walking along, and it was as if the two friends had never been apart. Cox willingly climbed into the cart, and the two friends went off to play together. Brando didn't come home for three days. Brando's acting teacher, Stella Adler, would later say, To say that Wally Cox was not what he appeared to be would be the understatement of the ages. Behind the mild-mannered, even weak facade was a sarcastic little bastard with a rapier-like wit. He was the only person in the world who could cut Marlin down to size, and he did, frequently. And Marlin shut his mouth and took it from this tough little mutton chop. As Brando's career began to take off with roles in Broadway shows like I Remember Mama, Cox kept pursuing his work as a silversmith. He and Brando would attend parties in the village, and Wally would bring a pillowcase filled with his work for sale, tie clips, pins, and the like. To help sell his stuff, and to satisfy his own urge to perform, Cox began doing stand-up comedy bits, hard-edged material that was a far cry from the stuff he'd later perform on TV. His comedy was self-created based on people he'd known. His most popular monologue was about a guy named Dufo. The storyteller was a street kid who you could picture as one of the bullies who once tormented Wally Cox. We used to have friend Dufo, what a crazy guy. Always makes us laugh. You know when you're a kid, you do anything for a dare. You hang over the edge of a roof on a board for a dare. Well, we seen these guys just trying to get Dufo to hang over the edge of a roof on a board. And uh, we seen a board, it was a little thin board. And we told him it wouldn't hold you, you know? So he's gonna do it anyway. <laughs> what a crazy guy. We used to play uh, roof tag. Everybody has to run over the roofs. And, uh, Everybody has to run under the wire for uh, uh, radio or something, I don't know. So anyway, everybody runs under the wire but Dufo. <laughs> Gets him right in the neck. <laughs> what a crazy guy. You know, you know the guy can't swim, he throw him in the water, he gets scared. We seen this guy couldn't swim, we throw him in the water, he's getting real scared. So I said on Dufo, hey, pull him on. You know, he's drowning, he's turning blue, everything. So he keeps pushing him in again. What a crazy guy. We used to play uh, backyard race. 
everybody has to run across the backyard and climb over the fence and run across the backyard and climb over the fence and like that and whoever gets sitting in first wins so there's one backyard every time we run across a lady comes out and throws things at us you know water pins bottles everything and her husband gets real mad he puts up a board with nails in it so every time we climb over the fence we have to jump over the nails so one time he's out climbing over the fence everybody jumps over the nails but do fall <laughs> 16 stitches <laughs> what a crazy guy we used to take different cars and drive it around we didn't keep them or anything you know some guys sell them we didn't sell them or anything we used to park in front of the police station when we used to them well we seen his car it was a, a 39 package and the keys is in it so we was driving around so I said, let's go over to Dufo's house. So we went over there and left it out in front and went inside. And I said, hey, Dufo, that's my car right there. How do you like it? So he says, that ain't your car. <laughs> you know, he's real dumb. So I told him, sure, here's the keys. I said, go ahead, take your girl for a ride. So he gets in it. He just gets around the corner and the cops pick him up. He's on two years probation. <sighs> well, I'll see you around, huh? By 1949, Cox had polished his stand-up to the point that he was ready to audition for Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, one of the most popular shows on radio or TV at the time. You can learn more about it by listening to our podcast about the show's host, Arthur Godfrey. Anyway, Cox did his bit about Dufo for Arthur Godfrey, and then he climaxed his act with another bit he used to do at parties. There's a tavern in the town, in the town, and there my true love sits him down, sits him down, and he drinks his wine as merry as can be, and never, 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 never thinks of me. Very, very well, for I must leave thee, do not let this parting breathe thee, for you know the very, 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 very best of friends must part. Eh, do, eh, do, eh, do, kind friends, eh, do, yes, do. Arthur Godfrey loved his stuff, and Wally Cox ended up recording the Dufo bit and his yodeling number. He also began to get work on live TV. At that time, most of it originated in New York City. Meanwhile, Brando's star was rising on Broadway. After a few parts and plays that opened and closed quickly, he was cast in a streetcar named Desire. And it isn't exaggerating to say that his powerful performance made him an instant star. He played Stanley Kowalski, a working-class bully who feels patronized by his genteel southern sister-in-law, Blanche Dubois, played on Broadway by Jessica Tandy, and in the movie version by Vivian Lee. You must be Stanley. I'm Blanche. Oh, you're still sister. Yes. Oh, hi. Hey, where's the little woman? In the bathroom. Oh. Well, where are you from, Blanche? Well, I live in Oriel. Oriel. Oriel, huh? Oh, yeah, that's right, Oriel. That's not my territory. Man, look, it goes fast in the hot weather. You want a shot? Uh, no, I, I rarely touch it. Well, there's some people that rarely touch it, but it touches them often. Uh -huh. 
Hey, you mind if I make myself comfortable? My shirt is sticking. Please, please do. Be comfortable. That's my motto, where I come from. It's mine, too. It's hard to stay looking fresh in hot weather where, where I haven't washed or even powdered. Here you are. Well, you know, you gotta be careful. You're sitting around a damn thing gets you cold. Especially when you've been exercising hard like bowling is. Well, you're the uh, teacher, aren't you? Yes. What do you teach? English. Well, I never was very good any student. How long are you here for? Well, I don't know yet. You gonna, you gonna shack up here? I thought I would if it's not inconvenient for you all. Yeah. Traveling wears me out. Well, take it easy. Not oh, those cats. In the fall of 1951, the film version of A Streetcar Named Desire was released, and the rest of the country discovered Marlon Brando. Film offers came pouring in. Wally Cox, meanwhile, was cast in a TV play that would change his career, if not his life. It was a comedy drama called The Copper, written by a guy named David Swift. Cox played a milquetoast police officer who proved his worth by going undercover in order to impress his hard-nosed father-in-law, who was also a cop. The copper got good reviews, as did Cox, and the author of the piece, David Swift, was even more impressed. He had been working on a sitcom pilot about a mild-mannered schoolteacher named Robinson Peepers, known as Mr. Peepers to his students, and Cox seemed tailor-made for that role. I'm sorry, Mr. Dean, Miss Peepers, but these children continue playing those records when I tell them to study. Doesn't bother me a bit, you know. I, uh, we used to have music around our house all the time. Oh, really? We have a faculty glee club that meets every other Thursday. You like to sing? Well, I used to be a boy soprano, but I had to give it up when I was 13. <laughs> my, my, uh, my voice changed. Got higher. <laughs> Mr. Peepers still stands today as a low-key but high-quality sitcom. The scripts were written by Swift and also by the writing team of Jim Fritzell and Everett Greenbaum. If those names ring a bell, you might be familiar with some of their other credits, better-than-average episodes of The Andy Griffith Show and M.A.S.H. Mr. Peepers had the same quiet comic style of The Andy Griffith Show, and the relationship between Mr. Peepers and his best friend, the brash Harvey Westcott, played by Tony Randall, mirrored the one between Sheriff Andy Taylor and Barney Fife. You know, um, I've had an idea for an historical novel for years. Oh, I didn't know you were interested in writing. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Years. Years and years. Matter of fact, I've started it already. Oh, that's wonderful. It's about Eli Whitney. Oh, excellent. Uh, what is the title? No, no title yet. Mm -hmm. uh, how many chapters do you have done? Well, no actual chapters yet. Uh -huh. Well, uh, how far have you gone? Well, so far, here's what I've got. It is Eli Whitney of whom I speak. <laughs> you like it? Oh, sure. Yeah, well, I admit it needs work. It needs work. It'll come. 
Mr. Peepers ran on NBC from 1952 to 1955. During that same time, Brando was becoming one of Hollywood's biggest stars and most controversial figures. He won an Oscar for On the Waterfront, and his other films during that decade included Guys and Dolls, Viva Zapata, and The Wild One, in which Brando played the leader of a motorcycle gang. There was just one problem. He didn't know how to ride a motorcycle, but Wally Cox did, and he taught Brando. Wally Cox's star was also on the rise, at least on television. In 1958, NBC signed him to an unusual contract, seven years at $50,000 a year to develop special projects for the network. It was during this time that Cox also wrote a play and several books, and in the early 1960s he started appearing in movies like State Fair and Spencer's Mountain. He was cast in a featured role in Something's Got to Give, the 1962 film that Marilyn Monroe died before finishing. And in 1965, he and Brando co-starred in the only film they made together, a World War II thriller called Morituri. That same year, Wally Cox guested on Andy Williams' NBC variety show and talked about his friend. You know, earlier, Wally was telling me that he went to school in Evanston, Illinois, and uh, that he went to school with Marlon Brando. Uh, what kind of a man is he? Well, he's a very, he's a very funny man, very fine man. But uh, at that time, he was a very sober youth. He was? At the age of nine, yes. <laughs> and uh, he wasn't any fun. And neither was I. <laughs> he liked uh, boxing, and I hated losing. <laughs> he, uh... He said, you want to play chess? And he would say it in kind of a, that sort of sound, that sort of face. I'd say, yes, yes, teach me how. So he would get out the board, set it up without saying a word, put the pieces on one at a time. I had to wait for 32 pieces. And then he would, then he would move a piece. And then he would say to me, all right, now you move that piece there. So I did. Then he moved another piece. And he said, now you move that piece there. So I did. And then he brought up his bishop and he said, there, I've won. <laughs> the relationship between Brando and Cox, deep as it was, wasn't perfect. Brando, for lack of a better word, could be a big jerk. He was jealous of Cox's three wives and Cox would get angry when Brando would pull a temperamental stunt at a party or a gathering. Once in the mid-1960s, the two men went motorcycle riding with James Coburn and Lee Marvin. They stopped in Bakersfield, California, where a busload of senior citizens recognized only one of the four actors, Wally Cox, the guy they'd seen on TV. They flocked around him for his autograph while Brando sulked nearby. Cox stayed busy throughout the 1960s. In one of his better TV guest roles, he appeared on The Dick Van Dyke Show as the know-and-all Lincoln Goodhart, Rob Petrie's opponent for a city council seat. So you're uh, Lincoln Goodhart? Yes. <laughs> uh, you, you, is it proper for us to be uh, together, you know, before? Well, I don't know why not. We're not bride and groom, you know. <laughs> Plain ordinary candidates, I guess. 
uh, something wrong? No, you actually look like your buttons. Oh, my campaign buttons. Oh, yeah, great. Matter of fact, you look a lot like your bumper stickers. <laughs> well, of course, you're, you're not. You're more, you know. Yes. <clears throat> you, have you seen my balloons? <laughs> well, I have, you know, with my picture on them. For the, oh, when they're blown up, I... <laughs> no, I just have the stickers and buttons. Well, that's that's better. I don't. Uh, I didn't ask for the balloon. You know, I mean, kids can't vote anyway. Well, I like kids. Okay. You know, this is my first time out politically. You know, and I gotta admit, I'm a, I'm a little bit nervous. Well, that's understandable. <laughs> Are you nervous? No. Beautiful uh, day out. It's going to rain. You think so? I'm quite certain. Well, it can't rain today. The witch came out of the gingerbread house. <laughs> well, that, I, that probably sounds... My uh, son has one of those little weather forecasters on the wall. A plastic gingerbread house. And if it's clear, the witch comes out. And, and But if it's going to rain, then Hansel and Gretel will come out. Very scientific. <laughs> and chemical or something. Well, with all due respect to your son's gingerbread house, there's an easterly low-pressure area meeting a cold front over Ohio, and that should reach here by this afternoon. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Rain. <laughs> but by this point in his career, there was really no doubt about it. Wally Cox was too often typecast. Movie work was getting harder to come by, except for comic roles in Walt Disney movies like The Boat Nicks and The Barefoot Executive. Providing the voice of Underdog also helped pay the bills, and when Hollywood Squares premiered in 1966, Cox was a permanent member of the panel, along with Charlie Weaver. There were rumblings that Cox was despondent about his career. Some on the set of Hollywood Squares said he would often show up drunk for tapings, and if you watch clips on YouTube, you might think the same thing. He told people that the only thing he had left in life to enjoy was walking in the woods with Brando. He and Brando worked on their own projects just for fun, like making a tape recording of the King James Bible. And by the early 1970s, Brando was more popular than ever, appearing in blockbuster films like The Godfather, while Cox seemed to be marking time. The end for Wally Cox came on the morning of February 15, 1973. He was found dead in the bedroom of his home in Bel Air. He was 48. There were rumors of suicide. He'd been drinking heavily and an empty bottle of tranquilizers was found nearby. Marlon Brando was at his home in Tahiti, a place he'd bought after filming Mutiny on the Bounty there. He flew to Los Angeles where he found a note from Cox. He read it and tore it up. What Wally and I had was between the two of us, he told friends. His final note wasn't meant for other eyes, just mine. Brando then drove to Cox's house, which was filled with friends like Vincent Price, Ernest Borgnine, and other fellow panelists from Hollywood Squares. To avoid the crowds, he climbed in a back window and stayed in Cox's bedroom. Later, Cox's wife asked Brando to pick up Cox's ashes at the mortuary. 
He agreed, and she always assumed that he spread them in the hills where they loved to hike. Until years later, when she read a magazine interview with Brando, where he said he still kept the ashes nearby, even having conversations with them and taking them on car rides. This is what Brando wrote in his 1994 autobiography. Not a day goes by when I don't think of Wally. Sometimes I wander around my house, pick up one of the chestnut walking sticks we brought home from a woodland long ago, think of something funny he said and laugh. Then I swear at him because he was an alcoholic who didn't take care of himself and died from a massive heart attack. Brando himself passed away at age 80 in 2004. At that point, Brando's children took his ashes, the ashes of Cox, and the ashes of another friend, Sam Gilman, and sprinkled them at Death Valley, where the men used to go on rock hunts. It also would have been nice if some of them were sprinkled on that schoolyard in Evanston, Illinois, just for closure. David Inman. Thanks for coming to the potluck. See you later. And now my love one's true to me Takes that dark damsel on his knee Fare thee well, for I must leave thee Do not let the parting grieve thee And remember that the best of friends must part Must part Adieu, adieu, kind friends, adieu Yes, adieu I can no longer stay with you I'll hang my heart, my heart on a weeping willow tree and make